Hello and welcome to another episode of Planning People, which this week continues our summer series of special great advice, great profession episodes on the state of play in financial advice. In the last episode, I spoke to Phil Young about the price of advice and specifically whether fees were set to increase in future. And of course, as part of that, we could not fail to mention the experience of businesses whose costs are going up. So this time around, we're going to look at that in a bit more depth to examine the state of play generally. Joining me to discuss the cost of running advice businesses, profitability and all the rest of it is Kay Ingram, Director of Public Policy at National Advice Firm LEBC. Hello, Kay. Good to see you. How are you? Good morning, Ollie. I'm well, thank you. Great stuff. Uh, now, Kay, as you're aware there is always a bit of a fun thing at the start of these podcasts and though it may sound intimidating I don't want you to worry we have the weekly rock hard quiz to do uh now I should say that the last guest I had on as part of the GAGP profession initiative did not do very well at all so any correct answers you get do command maximum respect uh I have a general knowledge quiz which I really hope will tickle your fancy on some basic costs uh throughout history gosh uh, and there's a little bit of a political theme running right. through it. So, question one. It's 1979. It's the year of Maggie Thatcher. New Agriculture Minister Peter Walker has a difficult announcement to make about the price of milk, which is going up. But to what? What was the price of milk in 1979? 5p? A pint? It was actually 15p. Oh. A lot higher. But Walker actually blamed the increase, surprise, surprise, on his Labour predecessor, who he claimed had delayed and delayed, meaning that a bigger increase than usual was necessary. Very interesting to look back at that story and to see how much has changed and how little has changed. Plus la change, as we say on this podcast. Question two. I was born in 1993, Kay. Not sure if you can remember what you were doing in that year. What was the price of a Citroen ZX Volcan TD car in that year? Goodness. How um, much do you think you would pay for a new car in 1993? 1993. Um, I think I was driving a Vauxhall Astra at the time. Oh, very nice. Um, oh, I don't know. Uh, £4,000? Actually, twelve thousand pounds. Twelve thousand. Well, the 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 car actually ranged price wise between twelve thousand six hundred thirty pounds to twelve thousand nine hundred ninety five. Uh, the Volcan. I don't know if you can picture this. It was a kind of iconically styled hatchback with a very square back end. I actually think it lo- still looks pretty cool. It's by no means the worst design that Citroen have ever come up with, and by God, they have come up with some shockers. Uh, I'm hoping I won't get a call from the Citroen legal department. Uh, Question three. It's now 1997. Okay. Tony Blair has come to power. A new wave of hope sweeps the nation as Britpop and Cool Britannia take hold. But how much is a pack of 20 cigarettes? I know it's not big or clever to smoke, and I imagine you don't smoke, but they're still a major reference point for inflation. Well, I did smoke until 1987, actually. Did you? Um, I did, yeah. Oh. Um, but I then became pregnant, and that was a great incentive to go up smoking. Um, Good for you. So in 1997, I think maybe three pounds for twenty. Pretty much bang on. It's yeah. two ninety four. Two pounds ninety four. Uh, any smoker will tell you that those were hallowed days when you could go into a shop and buy a packet of fags for two pounds ninety four. Things have really moved on. Question four. I'm going to regard that as a correct answer. Thank so max, maximum respect points are triggered. Uh, question four. It's Thursday, the 1st of September, 2011. David Cameron is Prime Minister, Deputy PM, Nick Clegg. The cost of gold has peaked. Uh, what is the price uh, of a troy ounce of gold? 2011. Um, I, I, I'm not really sure. I, let, let's say $100. So it's... 
It's £1,160, oh, Troy Ounce. Uh, Gordon Brown obviously kicking himself at that news, That's having right. sold off all he the gold. He did sell the gold before that, didn't he? He did, uh, much to the chagrin of the tabloid newspapers and indeed economists everywhere. Question five, final question. It's August 2018. Uh, Theresa May is still in power. She is now, though that slightly in, in, in question. You and I are weeks away from having a nice chat at the Conservative Party conference. Uh, all about all things politics. Uh, but what is the average price of a semi, semi-detached house? Uh, semi-detached, right. The average price at the moment is about 226000 isn't it, nationally? Um, so I would probably say around 220 something like that. You are absolutely in the right ballpark. It's 234174 so that's the August 2018 figure. The year before that, it was 223,857. Now, if that doesn't show you how much people in this country love property, I don't know what does. Uh, thank you very much for playing. You got one question right, Gosh. which I think does which command. Which is the price of fags, wasn't it? Which... The price of fags. Yeah. I didn't, I, and that was not an outcome I was expecting. So always good to surprise listeners and indeed your host. Thank you for that. Um, we are here, of course, to talk about financial advice, the costs of running advice businesses. Um, let's talk about LEBC first and foremost. Um, you have some pretty strong views, I imagine, about the FCA's RDR review, which is looking at the impact of the RDR and in the context of how much it costs uh, advisors and business owners to run their businesses, uh, there are some pretty interesting conclusions to be made, aren't there? Yes, indeed. Um, and in fact, when the RDR was introduced, um, we we looked at how we would deal with that and, and what our approach would be. And we went away on a retreat to a remote part of Scotland uh, the senior management team. Uh, it was quite a long journey, actually, and one that was quite perilous in part. So I did wonder <laughs> at one stage if our CEO had other intentions um, to <laughs> cut, cut costs by... Is this Jack? Yes. Um, but at that retreat, we um, we spent um, several days there in a, in a hunting lodge that was miles from anywhere, um, and we thrashed out how we'd respond to RDR. Mm. And at the end of that, we came out with the Declaration of Rahoy, Rahoy was the place where the retreat was taking place. And the Declaration of Rahoy uh, committed LEBC to seeking to cut the cost of advice to make it more accessible and more affordable to more people. Okay. So we're the advisor for the many, not the few. Yes. Um, to use a political analogy. To use a political <laughs> phrase. <laughs> um, so why do we want to do that? Well, we feel that advice is really important. Yeah. We feel it can change people's lives for the better. And we'd like everybody to have access to it. Um, and we feel also that in doing that, we can actually grow the potential for financial advice as an industry mm. and make it more profitable um, overall for everybody. That's so interesting. And what a beautifully colourful uh, story about the declaration of, do you say Rahoy? Rahoy, yes. Um, I am reminded at this point of a conversation I had with Paul Feeney, who's chief executive of Quilter. And uh, Quilter been pretty honest about uh, about its feelings about profitability of small firms. When you were making that kind of, uh, when you were thrashing all those details out at that time, were there sort of specific segments or specific types of firms that you thought, hang on, these firms are going to struggle in this new regulatory environment to turn a profit because the cost of regulation, professionalisation and standards is going to go up? 
I think I think I don't think that the size of the firm is that important. Although obviously you don't get economies of scale within a smaller firm, right? And it may also be more difficult to invest. I mean, at LEBC we've invested in recruitment. Yeah. We set up our academy and we've taken nineteen graduates into that. And I know other firms have done. Uh, other larger firms have also made progress in that way. Um, but we've also invested in technology. Mm. And I think if we didn't have technology then the advice gap would be unsolvable. Yes. Um, because the traditional way of giving advice, and I've been in this industry now, it'll be 40 years next year, um, the traditional way is very expensive, it's very time-consuming, and you need lots of man-hours of highly skilled and, and highly paid people. Mm. Um, so the scope to actually make advice accessible in the traditional way is quite limited. Mm. And, and a lot of firms, a lot of smaller firms will say, well, we're not interested in that. We just want to look after the people we've always looked after. And that's their choice. But I don't think that's particularly helpful in terms of the future adv of advice generally mm. and uh, helping consumers to make better decisions in the future. I mean, it, it sounds, it's very interesting that LEBC is essentially kind of put, putting its neck on the line there to say, we want to do something more than what we've just been doing. Mm -hmm. Um Presumably, that comes at a cost to the company. It does come at a cost to the company. We have to invest, and we have invested, as I say, in both people and technology. What sort of figures are we talking? I, mean, um, I don't have all the figures in front of me because I'm not mm, the finance director. Sure. Um, but I think the point is that we see that as a positive investment of the profits we're making yeah. to grow the business. You can't grow a business without investing some of your profits back into it. Yeah. And by investing in technology, we are able to increase the productivity of our advisors and to make advice more affordable and to extend its reach. The reason we think that's really important is... As I said earlier, everybody can benefit from advice in our view. Mm. And over the last few decades, retirement has changed enormously. Everybody talks about the ageing population, about pension freedoms making a difference in 2015. But I think there's a longer term trend. Um, it used to be that retirement was something that happened to you. It wasn't, you didn't decide. At 60 or 65, your contract of employment would have said, right, your contract ends. Yeah, you're done. Uh, but obviously the age discrimination legislation in 2006 meant that that was illegal. Mm. So no one now has a fixed retirement date. And more people were in defined benefit schemes and mm. people had a set age for the state retirement pension of either 60 or 65, depending whether they were women or men. All that has changed in the last 10 or 15 years yeah. in that we no longer have fixed state retirement ages, fewer people have defined benefit pensions, and it's no longer the case that an employer can turn around to you when you're 60 and say, right, your contract's finished now, regardless of your performance, your contribution, or your uh, willingness uh, and appetite to carry on working. Yeah. So what that means is that individuals now have to make many more decisions for themselves more people are dependent on money purchase pensions and that will increase over time and therefore there's a greater need for advice. So we see that as a great business opportunity, mm. which is why we're very happy to reinvest some of our profits into technology and into hiring more people yeah. so that we can actually fill that gap. And we'd like to see that um, gap close over time. Mm. Um, clearly what you're saying is, you know, LEBC is marked out in a profession that's otherwise sceptical about you know, technological intervention in, 
in in certain contexts in the advised process. Um, but you think some form of kind of bionic hybrid robo advice can work. Um, obviously, the, that cost is you know is, is an upfront cost. That's an investment. It strikes me that there is there is there's profitability in advice at the moment, and there are firms out there that are making money, decent money in some cases, very decent money. Um, but they've not decided to do uh, to take that approach. Is that, as I think you seem to be implying, just a question of sort of small mindedness, or is there more of a, a business case against it? Do you think? No, I, th- I think firms? I wouldn't call it small mindedness. I think if you're running a small business and it's more of a lifestyle business, then you may say, well, we're in a sweet spot at the moment. Yeah. There's more demand for advice than there are advisors to supply it. The number of advisors before RDR was 32,000. Yeah. It went down to 22,000 post-RDR, yeah. and it's now around 26,000. So advisor numbers are going up again. Um, but if you are looking for a long a relationship in financial advice, if you're not just looking to when you personally retire, but beyond that then there's a huge opportunity to invest in technology and in people Mm. so that you can serve a much bigger market. Mm. And if the market grows, if the size of the cake grows, then there's more for everybody. Um, And there's more profitability in the future. Uh, But also, you know, just as importantly, there is a need for advice. And I think if advisors don't grasp this challenge, then we'll find that financial advice, uh, particularly regulated independent advice, will become very much a minority interest. It will be seen mm. as being something for rich people. And if that happens, then not only will lots of people of more modest means lose the benefit of advice, but also uh, the politicians and the regulators will not be listening to IFAs when it comes to making new regulations. Mm. So I think if the advice community wants to stay relevant in the economy and in the political sphere, then it does need to, to uh, respond to this challenge by increasing the scope and access to advice. Mm. It's interesting that that is, that is intrinsically connected, in your view, to, Absolutely. The, to the current state of play in yes. politics and regulation. I mean, the FCA's own research shows that um, at the moment, only 6% of people are fully engaged in financial advice, but there's another 8% who would like to take advice but mm. don't know how to get it. So there's an immediate there's an immediate undersupply of advice mm. and a, a, a demand for advice which isn't being met. Mm. And I think what the IFA community has got to say is, oh, are we going to meet that, that gap yes. or are we going to let others do that? Yes. And whilst robo-advice may help some people with minor financial decisions, I don't think it's appropriate for anything other than gathering assets under management. Mm. Um, If you want to save £100 a month and you don't know where to start, it may be a good place to start. But if you've got a key strategic decision to make, like when do I retire, how much can I afford to draw down from my pension plan every year, or if you have a critical need for advice, such Mm. as you've been bereaved, you're about to get divorced, or you've been made redundant and you really need some emergency help, with advice, then I don't think Robo is going to do it for you, Mm. which is why we've created Bionic Advice, which is a combination of using technology to augment the ability of advisors, um, but also including a human element in that advice process so that the soft facts and the the things that influence people's decision-making can be taken fully into account. Mm. And 
a wider and more far-reaching conversation can be had than just which fund do I invest in and how much do I pay in. Of course. Because what, what IFAs actually do for their clients is much, much wider than a range of regulated investments. And I yeah. think sometimes, because regulation is only about regulated investments, the other aspects of what an IFA can actually add in value for an individual is forgotten. Mm. Um, and when it comes to regulation... I mean, it's a complaint much aired in this studio and in the pages of NMA and indeed on other trade publications, dare I mention their names, uh, that the cost of regulation is just, just going up. Um, you, LEBC seems reasonably comfortable with being able to operate and, and innovate within that space, in, in a space where the, kind of the, the net is tightening, shall we say. And we know that there are lots of firms out there that are deeply uncomfortable about the FSCS levy about how volatile the increases to that seem to be, but also about professional indemnity insurance, which we've seen dramatic and, and almost, I would say, shocking increases to premiums, sometimes justifiably, perhaps given the liabilities involved, but a general knock-on effect that is nevertheless quite startling, even for firms that haven't involved themselves in high-risk work like DB transfers. Yes. Um, is LEBC comfortable in in that environment with those changes with you know a volatile fscs levy with increasing regulatory costs no i think like other advice businesses would be happier if there was more certainty about those sort of charges okay and one of the things that we recommended when the um, when the regulator consulted on the fscs review and funding of fars and fscs was to have a product levy rather than the current system i think the big the big um thing that worries us about the current system of funding is it enables firms to dump their liabilities yes. on the rest of the industry. Absolutely. Um, and that doesn't seem right because ultimately it means that our clients who are paying for advice are actually paying for that ultimately because if yeah. we have increased costs, we do our best not to pass them all on, but we have to pass at least some of them on. Yes. And I do understand um, the frustration that particularly small firms feel when they feel they have no control over these costs and uh, they're suddenly presented with an increase in the levy uh, or suddenly presented with increases in professional indemnity costs. So I think that is an area that needs to be looked at again uh, because our chief executive, actually, Jack McVitie, did come up with uh, an idea which has gained some support, which was that if firms have got less than five regulated advisors, they ought to be required to be part of a network. Now, I know a lot of small firms would would balk at that but his thinking was that one of the big problems with advice is actually ensuring that it's sense checked okay. and that it makes sense uh, from the consumer's point of view and that the regulations are being properly abided by and it's actually quite difficult to check your own work mm. so if you're in a yeah. small firm and you're the only person in that firm who, yeah. for example, has got a pension transfer license or the only person who is uh, authorised to advise, say, on care fees, yeah. then you've got no one to check your work and you've got no one to keep you up to date with changes in regulation or changes in legislation. Now, as a large firm, we are able to um, have those resources that are deployed just to do that. Yes. And, and we have peer reviews and uh, lots, of, um, lots of levels of checking of advice. Uh, to make sure that we're absolutely satisfied that we can make it as good as it can be. But if you're in a small firm, you can't do that. And, you know, in a small firm, you can't really keep up with legislation to the same extent. Mm. Um, so we think it would benefit smaller firms 
uh, if they were part of a network and actually outsource those services. Is there a quid pro quo there in that, you know, perhaps in return for surrendering some of the, uh, you know, the semantic independence there, that they would receive that compliance support and, and perhaps be able to bring some of their costs down? Yes, I think that's the case. Because again, you know, the smaller the firm, the, the less easy it is to achieve economies of scale. Mm. Um, How likely is it that, that, you know, Jack's idea of doing that will be supported and, uh, and, and take hold? Because well, it, it seems like a sort of pragmatic solution, slightly radical, perhaps. I can see what some small firms would say, but uh, is, that a, a, is that something that you've right. put in your so, response some other to larger the firms, so, Yeah, some other larger firms have actually um, given support to that view. And I think it's because mm. um, if we look at what happened in South Wales... Mm. Uh, with some of the firms that were using unregulated introducers and yeah. obviously there's an ongoing investigation into the quality of the advice given. But if you've got a, if you've got a small firm where there's only one or two principles, if they decide to be reckless or careless or deliberately decide to make a lot of money out of a situation without taking the proper without taking um, the consumer's um, needs into account fully, then what happens is that their liabilities end up on the rest of the industry. And that means that the cost of advice for everybody else goes up. Mm. So uh, without a product levy to pay for the FSCS, uh, which would actually spread the cost much more widely, and if that was only available on regulated products, then it would be logical for only regulated products to be covered by the FSCS compensation. And that's another cause for concern, mm. which a lot of advisors are unhappy about, is that if a regulated advisor advises on an unregulated product, and that then turns out not to have been a good piece of advice, um, then, or, or in some cases could even be a fraudulent um, yes. exercise, then the cost of compensation falls back on the rest of the industry. Mm. So a product levy would be our first uh, solution to the uncertainty of FSCS costs because that would spread the cost. It would be like an insurance premium everybody pays, a bit like when you, yeah. um, you know, you spread the cost of life cover, for example. So it's it's very cheap in this country. Um, if that uh, can't be done or if that isn't sufficient in itself, then requiring smaller firms to actually be part of a, a bigger supervisory organisation we feel would be a good step forward to improving uh, advice and also improving the reputation of advice because it's not just the cost of levies and compensation that firms have to pay out. When poor advice is given, uh, whether it's from a large firm or a small firm, then it, it reflects on the reputation of the whole profession. Of course, and everyone suffers. Uh, just finally, Kay, um, I have seen some analysis uh, by the aforementioned Quilter, actually, uh, which suggests that their... Uh, platform sales guys uh, have identified a kind of break-even point in terms of revenue and profitability for firms, and uh, they suggest that that for an advice business to be profitable, they may need to be making around a thousand pounds a year in fee uh, or revenue or otherwise from that client. Um, does LEBC have a kind of uh, a similar kind of break-even No, we don't, actually, because we, we give a wide range of advice mm. to a wide range of individuals and, and, and also to companies and to trustees of pension schemes. Okay. 
So, and we don't have a funds under management type model either in the sense that, and I think, you know, some of the larger businesses, some of the vertically integrated businesses are clearly um, focusing on getting funds under management because yes. the ongoing fees subsidise the upfront cost of advice. Yes. Um, that's not our model. Um, we serve a very wide audience um, and we charge fixed fees for our advice. Um, so that, and we've done that by working out what the cost of the advice is to us, by looking at the inputs from power planners, from advisors, from client support, um, and then working out on average what we need to charge for that piece of work. Is that an hourly thing? The underlying analysis is hourly rate. Okay. Uh, and we do offer hourly rate as an alternative, but primarily it's a fixed fee. So if you came yeah. to us and said, I want you to look at um, a pension transfer or yeah. I want you to look at um, funding my children's school fees, whatever it happens to be, yeah. we, we would actually have a fixed cost that we would have a good idea what, what it's, it's going to cost us. Now, that's not an exact science, but it means that people know up front what they're going to pay before they're committed to paying for it. Yes, there's no um, smoke and mirrors. And it's not contingent. So... Yeah. Um, they can rest assured that there's no um, bias there in terms of coming up with a given solution. It enables us to look at all solutions. Interesting. Uh, brilliant. Uh, Kay, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, really nice to have you back in the studio. Our new studio, I might add, for anyone that has been watching what we've been up to. Um, once again, if you have any news or views on the cost of running an advice business or indeed any other topic, do get in touch with us at news at citywide.co.uk. We do read everything that you write. And if it's really, really good, we might even ask your permission to publish it. Shock horror. Uh, as regards this episode, if you've enjoyed listening, then we'd be grateful for any support in subscribing on iTunes and leaving us a lovely review. Thank you so much in advance for that. Uh, that would be much appreciated. Join us again next time in this special GAGP series when we'll be discussing more of the issues that matter to advice businesses in 2019. But until then, thanks so much for listening and goodbye.